We are in part 12 of our series through the book of Hebrews entitled Our Faithful High Priest. And I entitled this morning's message, Fully Forgiven. And I want to talk with you about an issue that I've probably said about 80,000 times in this message. For most of you, it's not new, but some of you... Uh, very well, maybe new to this Christianity thing or new to this church thing. And I want to be very honest with you as well. We talk about sin in this church and, and indeed ever since we were in the garden of Eden, we've had a sin problem. And ever since that time, God has been addressing the sin problem in various ways. But I want to make sure that we're all clear on what we should be stressing about and what we should not be stressing about. There are things that we, when we talk about sin, uh, we freak out about and we don't need to. And there are other things that, quite frankly, nobody's concerned about and you need to be freaked out about. And so I want to be very clear on what those things are when it comes to the issue of sin. So we begin with this. There are really two categories of people, according to Scripture. The first category that I want to address is what we would define as believers, those that have given their life over to Christ, those that have allowed the cross and all that Jesus did to flow into their life, to forgive them, to cleanse them and make them whole and a new creation in Christ. We will deem those people uh, uh, children of God, saved, what have you. The other category it, we will define as non-believers. For whether reasons of ignorance or apathy or rebellion or whatever, they have not yet engaged with Jesus Christ. They have not yet allowed all that he did to become true for them. We can refer to them as God's creation, and we can refer to them in many different ways. I would like to address that group first. Uh, sin in that category still remains on those people. And yes... We need to worry about it. Uh, guilt is there. Shame is there. And there is animosity about your sin from God. You are held accountable for it. And yes, the Bible says that wrath is awaiting judgment of that sin. That's the straightforward manner. Should you be stressed about that? Absolutely. Why? It's the same stress as, hey, I'm going to have a picnic on the railroad tracks. If you hear a woo-woo in the distance, you're supposed to be nervous about that because it's your big motivator to get off the tracks, yeah? So there's some fear and there's some anxiety that is necessary to create change. All right, fantastic. The other category, however, also has things that we are not paying attention to, nor are we owning. We have not allowed them to settle from our heads down into our hearts. So let me define that category. If you are a believer or a child of God, your status has been changed. Sin is dealt with in your standing before God. Practical sin, the stuff every day, yes, still affects relationships. It becomes a parenting issue from God. Sin is important, but it's not eternally on you. It's about discipline and correction, not wrath. Guilt only goes so far as a parental correction tool, and shame is minimized and only utilized as a correction parenting tool. Why do I say that? Because so many of us are living lives that are not consistent with our standing. We are living lives, some of us are non-believers, and we don't think it's a big deal that's inconsistent with reality. 
There are those of us that live as Christians, and every time we talk about sin, there's this heavy weight that is attached to it that is beyond what is necessary, because you're thinking about it wrongly. The great irony is those that need to be convicted by their sin are not, and those that do not need to be convicted by it are. One of the things that really is hard for me as a pastor is I talk to somebody and they would say things like, Lance, I just can't get past my past. There's something that I've done in the past and it's so wicked, I don't even want to talk to you about it. And so eventually, through a little bit of massaging, I would say, you know, you can tell me about it. And they share it with me. And of course, it's not nearly as bad as they think it is. And for me, I just don't get shocked by anything. So we go, all right, what next? And I said, so what's the big issue? Well, you know what? I did that thing. It's horrible. I'm a monster. And I would say, all right, have you talked to God about it? Well, yeah. Yeah, like 30 years ago. All right. Well, well, did you read anything in the word about it? Well, I don't know. I couldn't really find anything. Well, when you prayed about it, what did God say? Well, he didn't say anything. He was super quiet. All right. (laughs) Did you confess it? Did you say, I own it? This is really what's going on with me. And God, I feel horrible about it. I have this godly sorrow that has gone into my spirit. And Lord, I don't know what to do about it. Have you said, God, I need to hand it over to you? Yeah, absolutely. I did that a long time ago. Okay. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that if God dealt with it, it's dealt with. Why are you still carrying it? Why are you not allowing God to tell you what happened to your sin? Why are you in control? Why are you making the cross of Christ ineffective? Why are you saying that your particular sin is too great for the cross to cover? Why do you think you have that right? Oh, well, because it's different in my situation. Oh, I get it. So the Bible only applies to everyone else, not to you. See, that is not true. If God has dealt with it, it is dealt with. And there are many of us that need to soak in the idea of what cleansing and forgiveness really means. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. And I want you to own this. Where God forgives, sin no longer remains. Where God forgives... Sin no longer remains. Some of us need to be set free today, not by God, but in your own head. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible today, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 1006, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, page 1006 in those Bibles. We're going to be going through verse 18. And this passage is going to tell you this point over and over and over again in a rather clear fashion, I would hope, at the end. But let me be honest. This is another one of those passages of Hebrews where I read it and I didn't get it. Okay, so I read through this passage and I was like, shoot, I got to teach this stuff. I don't even know what he's talking about. All right, that becomes a problem when you're the primary teacher. If I read through this and you go, man, I feel totally lost. I get it. I was just there. It was not until I did enough research and study in it that all of a sudden I went, oh, man, this is totally obvious. I wish I would have owned that in the first place. Okay, so please do not feel like, wow, he just read through that. I don't get it. Of course you don't get it. A whole bunch of us don't get it, right? Unless I'm the only ignorant person in the room, which is, (laughs) it's possible. I'm not saying it's, it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not likely, all right? I'm sure there's one other guy, right, largely in the middle section that, uh, all right, here we go. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has 
but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this, to us, for after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, would you open up our minds that we would receive what you have to say that this author of Hebrews, Holy Spirit, that you blew through to create this written word would become alive in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do it. Let's back up to verse 1. Anybody else ignorant on what the world is going on? Fantastic. All right, that one dude in the middle. Here we go. The sentence sounds confusing, but it's pretty straightforward. Here's the way it sounds. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. All right, so what did he say? For since the law, what's the law? That's the Old Testament, the Israelite rules and regulations that God handed down. For since that code of rules has but a shadow of the good things to come. What are the good things to come? Salvation, cleansing, forgiveness, that kind of stuff. Since it only had a shadow, a pale representation, no substance behind it, it was but a sampling, not built to address that issue, but built to address another issue. Since it was a mere facade or starting point of all that, it can never, it can Never, by design, not failure, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, and why are they continually offered? Because we continue to sin, right? As long as the sin keeps going, offerings have to be made. 
can never make perfect those who draw near, those who utilize it. What does it mean to be made perfect? It does not mean to be sinless in practicality. It doesn't mean that suddenly we're all going to be awesome people down here. What it means is to be saved, to make holy, to make acceptable to God. The old concept was never designed and built to make you perfect in standing with God. Remember when I told you uh, a while back, I used a couple of analogies that maybe would make it a little bit more simple. One, I said that the Old Testament sacrificial system was kind of like a layaway plan. Remember that? Hey, man, I put a, a good faith estimate down. I'll give, but give you a little bit now. And really, it's going to be taken care of later, waiting for the Messiah. Uh, I also mentioned that it kind of atonement meant you cover over sin. So you kind of put the sin under the rug and covered it. But at some point, somebody needed a vacuum. Remember I told you that? And then Jesus Christ went and vacuumed the inside. All right. Same idea. It cannot, because it was not designed to, make perfect those that would utilize it. Otherwise, verse 2, and he makes a practical argument. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Why are they still going? Why are they built on a system that continually runs if it was effective? That doesn't make sense. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, if it was complete, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. They would not have sins staring back at them all the time, going, man, I know I did that one sacrifice, but next year i got to do the exact same thing all over again. Oh, look, I guess I'm going to have to do it next year again. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So although it was effective in what it was designed to do, and we'll talk about that, it was ineffective for cleansing consciences, but it never allowed them to believe that they were now good to go. There was a constant reminder by the very nature of the system, man, you're wicked, you're messed up. And you know what? You're so messed up that no matter what we do right now, you're going to be messed up again later. And we got to go cover that too. And then he drops this bomb, right? Because he's talking to Jews. He's talking to these guys who have be followed the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They've now become uh, Messianic Jews, believers in Jesus Christ. But they're very tempted to go back to the old way. They like want to go back to option A. It's like option A was there and then Jesus came, option B. And they're like, I want to go back to the A one because I'm getting so much heat and persecution for being a Christian. So he drops this bomb on him in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why is it impossible? Well, okay, let's think practically. Human sin and rebellion needs human death, not goat death. Are we all clear on that? It's right there in the name. More dead goats doesn't make everything okay. It's just a lot of dead goats, right? Okay, so we keep hearing these phrases like sacrifices and offerings. What's the difference between these two? I'm going to simplify it in a major way. When you think about sacrifices, I want you to think that's usually for the issues of sin. When you think about offerings, that's usually for issues of conduct and behavioral things. For example, um, I want to give a thanksgiving offering and tell God I want to be able to give a tithe offering. I want to be able to give these offerings. It was much more about allowing the person to grow up in God sacrifices tended to lean towards a sin covering issue all right 
but not all of us understand this old concept. So let's, let's nail down a couple things that were important. When you would bring an animal to be sacrificed for your sins, there were certain rules that were attached to it. One of those was it had to be your property. You were not allowed to find a jackalope out in the field and offer it on the altar of God. You're not allowed to do that. All right. But why? Because the thinking was or the concept was God already owns all the wild animals. It has to be your stuff. You don't get to go rip off his stuff and then bring it to him. That's not, that's not right. You had to be your domesticated animal. It had to be one of the animals that you own that was part of your checkbook. That was the point. The other concept was that it wasn't just animals. It could be grain, wine, flour, oil, depending on what you're offering. But it had to be the best. It had to be befitting of a king. It could not be leftover stuff. And the other thing was, remember, it was on a sliding scale of what you offered. It was not the amount. It wasn't like God was saying, man, for you to take care of your sins, you got to be loaded and bring me all kinds of stuff. That was not it. As a matter of fact, here's kind of how it went in a very crude way. You would go to temple, and if you were traveling, let's say, from the north, from the Galilee side, you'd go down to Jerusalem, and you needed to offer a sacrifice. Well, you weren't very wealthy. You couldn't travel with all your stuff going down, so you had to buy it at the temple. Basically, you go to the sacrifice store. You go to the sacrifice store, and they're like, hello, how are you doing today? Right? I don't know why they talk like that. But you just say, it's, <laughs> what can I help you with? Well, I'd like to buy a sacrifice. Okay. And you look at the shop window, and there's like big old Mongo bull cow thing. Right? And you're like, well, I would like one of those. They're like, that will be $50 million. And they're like, well, I can't afford that. They're like, well, we have the large goat. And you're like, well, it's still a little rich for my blood. They're like, we have small goat. And they're like, well, uh, no, that's, that's still a little bit much. We have Lemmy. You're like, well, no, no, I, I really only have a tiny bit of cash. They're like, we have bird. Okay, you, <laughs> that was even allowable was to buy bird, was to buy a dove, right? There were sacrifices that you could buy that were super cheap because the point was not quantity. The point was your heart and it was to adjust according to your income. These are all different concepts. Uh, a lot of these things were offered daily by the priests. They had a morning and evening sacrifice for the nation. The high priest would do morning and evening sacrifices. A lot of them were done on festivals and occasions. Um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, stuff like that. We've been talking about this for weeks. It's, it's not brand new to you. Some of it was done as a family, like Passover. Some of it was done by the priest. Most of it was done by the priest. But the bottom line was a token was offered to God and the rest was consumed by the priest's and the Levites. All right. But what was the point of it all? The point of it was to get across word pictures. And one of the big word pictures was substitution. Hey, you sinned. According to scripture, you need to die now. Oh, you don't want to die. Well, you can have goat die in your place. You're like, I, I, I'm opting for the goat thing, right? And the goat dies. Substitution was number one concept. Another one was shedding of blood. Sin equals death, so there was no covering over unless blood was shed. And a couple weeks ago, we had our elder Steve Burdick talk about the passage right before this about how important blood was. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's a big deal. All right? But they always knew that it was temporary. They always knew that it was a down payment that the Messiah was ultimately going to need to take care of the issue. They didn't believe it was Jesus. And they still don't, but they knew that it was a temporary fix. All right.
That is why, ultimately, what was needed was a complete sacrifice. It needed to be infinite in value, but human in identification, or else it wouldn't have been legit. That's why it was such a big deal that Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us, and was the Lamb of God that was offered on the sacrifice for us. Does that make sense? I kind of just gave you the end of the story. All right, pick it up in verse 5. Consequently, as a result, or since it was designed as temporary, when Christ, that word means Messiah, it's not Jesus' last name, it means Messiah, when Messiah came into the world, he said, and then they quote Psalm 40. So it's quoting David, who was speaking for the Messiah, and they're saying it was Jesus talking. Make sense? All right. Sacrifices and offerings you, Father, have not desired. Ultimately, it's not killing something that makes it better. Let's talk about how this should have been obvious. Let's say, for example, you're mad at me. I mean, I mean, I do something that just ticks you off, right? And so you decide to find out which is my car, and you go out and you key it. You're just like, all the way down the side, right? Please don't do that. <laughs> you key my car, and then afterwards, you're struck with guilt, and you say, Lance, I feel really bad. I keyed your car. And I would look, and I'd go, man, that, that, that is a bummer. I, I, how are, all right, you know what? Just kill a goat, and we're cool. Doesn't it just sound odd? How does that make it better? Okay, same thing with God. What do I really want you to do? I want you to not key my car in the first place, right? I mean, isn't that what I ultimately want? I want somehow for that to have been fixed, that we don't even have to go through this. I don't, a dead animal doesn't suddenly make it better. Okay, in the same way, sacrifices and offerings, the father was not truly desiring. He was desiring what? Obedience. Hey, how about we don't have to do this at all? That's actually what I want. How about you pay attention to what I asked of you? Think about it this way. If you're a parent, or you would, you would know this. Let's say your teenager is, uh, really has trouble with um, curfew, right? Because my mom's here, and that's what I wrestled with. All right. Let's say that you have trouble with curfew, and you said, if you are late, even a minute, you owe me five bucks. I'm going to make this hurt. Well, eventually, the teenager just rolls in 20 minutes late and drops a five in the thing and just goes, whatever, and moves on. Doesn't that kind of ruin the point? Is then you go, I don't want your money. That was not why we established this. What I want you to do is to come home on time. That's really what I want. Even your little offerings and stuff are not making it better. I just need your obedience. All right? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Meaning, I'm about to go take care of what this whole system could never do. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and became flesh. A body was prepared so that he would be that ultimate sacrifice to get it done. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure because temporary fix didn't satisfy. Then Messiah Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, the obedience that you wanted in the first place, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came as prophecy stated, which was, I don't want more of your dead stuff. I want your heart and your obedience. Okay? Pick it up in verse 8. Now, when he said above, quoting it again, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in, and he gives samplings. 
sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. He added this, behold, I have come to do your will. Here's what's so incredible. Part of the reason Jesus' sacrifice was appropriate, was right, was acceptable, was because he lived his life perfect in obedience to the Father. We minimize that piece. We don't pay attention to that piece. For 33 years, he did everything his father asked him to do, hands down. Because what did God want? He wanted obedience. But none of us could cut it. None of us could do it right. We all kept screwing it up. But Jesus came down and did what the father always wanted in the first place, was to do it right the first time. Then Jesus could offer that for the sins of the world. Does that make sense? That's the that's a substitution. All right. It says this. It says he does away with the first. We're in verse nine. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Why is that important? Because remember, this crew wanted to go back to option A instead of option B. The problem, there is no option A anymore. There's just option B. Okay, we are in the same place. There's so many of us that are still saying, I need to earn God's favor and I better do more good stuff or God's going to hate me. You're trying to go to option A. The problem is there is no option A. It's been obliterated. Once Jesus fulfilled everything on the cross, option A was ruined. You don't actually get that anymore. It's only option B. It's grace or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. There is no other means by which we can be saved. There is only one door to heaven. I get so frustrated by this idea of all religions go to heaven. No, that's dumb. Why? Because it's an insult to every religion. Uh, The religions are not the same, okay? And so you're insulting Hinduism, you're insulting Buddhism, you're insulting uh, Islam, you're insulting all of them by saying that. Don't say that. It's not true. No, not all religions go to heaven because they're they're diametrically opposed. But even so, religions of the world, they're all trying to say this is a way by which you can climb to get into God's favor. Christianity, on the flip side, says... You cannot do that. We only have option B. And option B is, unless you're cleansed, you're dead. Because good people don't get to heaven. Perfect people get to heaven. And you're not going to be able to cut that. So unless Jesus makes you perfect, you're done. That's the point. All right, we move forward. Verse 10. And by that will, by that same decision of God to do that, to save us in that fashion, we believers have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, here's where we got to clear up our terminology. Every other time you read about the word sanctification in Scripture, you're usually reading it from Paul's perspective, Paul the Apostle. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Not a lot of indicators would suggest that it's Paul. Whenever Paul uses the phrase sanctification, he means the process in life by which God makes you look more like Jesus. That's not what it means here. This is being used like Paul's term justified, which means at a one-time shot, you are made right and holy in God's sight. A past event 
constant implications. Got, got that? All right, so let's, let's watch the terminology for a moment. Because here's what's really great about it. By this process of Jesus, initiated by the Father, we believers have been sanctified. You know what that means? It means made permanently holy. It's the word saint. You have been made saints. Little quick side note on that. We all reject this idea of saints, right? If I said, hey, saints, and I refer to you that way, you'd be like, don't call me a saint. I'm not a saint, right? I'm a sinner in need of grace, right? Okay, I get it. And I play that game too. You know why we play that game? Because it lets us skate on a whole bunch of stuff. If I'm a sinner in need of grace, who cares if I'm a jerk? Dude, I'm a sinner in need of grace, right? It's kind of like, hey, I'm a jerk. Well, own it, man. I'm a sinner. That's the way it goes. If I'm a saint and I'm a jerk, there's a, there's a tension, because then I'm not lining up with my identification. I think that there's some of us in our personalities that need to start owning the idea that you're a saint. That you are actually made holy in the eyes of God. So when you don't act accordingly, there should be incongruency. There should be some awkwardness there. But if you're just a sinner in need of saving, you allow yourself to do whatever you want. Because, hey, I'm broken. That's just the way it goes. I wonder. The Bible seems to indicate that your identity is different. And there should be a problem, yeah? By that will, we have been sanctified. We have been made permanently holy by a past act that's moving forward through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, through obedience, all the way through death, once for all. That means there's no other option, and it's done. Okay, now if that's the case... Why then did God mandate this sacrificial system? We got to keep going back to this because if ultimately it didn't cleanse sin, if ultimately it didn't do what was totally necessary, why did we have the system? I mean, it wasn't our idea. God's the one that came up with it. We didn't go, man, I just did something really bad. I got to kill something. <laughs> That's not a natural logical progression. Why did God institute an animal sacrificial system for the atonement of sins if it was never going to fully cleanse us? That sounds like a waste. Let me clarify. It wasn't designed to. Is God allowed to design systems that teach us things about his nature? Yeah. When he does so, is it not beautiful? Yes. The law was not wrong. The law was not weak. The law was perfect because it did what it was designed to do. What was it designed to do? It was designed to tell you that sin's super important. You can't just do whatever you want. It causes death and you need something to substitute for you. Otherwise, you die forever. I mean, it was pretty clear on reminding you about the problem, right? That's why it was there. It was supposed to set up the Messiah thing. Did it do that well? It did. It was excellent. That's why the law is good, but not enough. We all clear on that? All right, cool. It says, verse 11, in contrast, old school, new school, old way, new way, priest, Jesus. Yeah? Every priest stands ready to work daily due to the demand at his service or role, offering repeatedly over and over the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins because it was designed as temporary. But in contrast, when Christ had offered for all time, guess what all time means? 
all time. Past, present, and future. All right, you need to own something else, guys. That if our status has been changed to that of child of God, then all the heavy stuff God lowers the hammer on you about, it's now discipline of a child, not wrath of an enemy. You have to own that. God doesn't hate you. Even when you are an absolute psycho, he doesn't hate you because you're his child. Will he correct you? Yes. Will he discipline you? Severely. Will he get in your face and you're going to feel like the wrath of God is coming on you? Of course. But he does so out of a motivation of love and restoration. A lot of us need to get rid of this idea that God hates you. And that every time you do something wrong, he can't even look at you. That's not true. Not if you're a believer. That is incorrect. It says... But in contrast, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, his body on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's very significant. Why? Because the priests have to remain standing. Why? Because here's how it looks practically. Hey, priest, I I totally did something wrong. Can you offer up this cow for me? Yeah, sure. And he stands up and he does that little thing and he's about to sit down and somebody goes, hey, man, I did some sins, too. Can you offer my sacrifice? Yeah, hold on one second. And then he tries to go sit down. Hey, man, I did it again. So if you, if you can offer and he gets up again, there's no point in sitting down. You have so much work ahead of you because everybody's sinning all the time. Then why did Jesus sit down? It's finished. I did it. We're done. That's it. All right, cool. Why does he sit down? Because he sits down because then you go up to him and you go, Jesus, I did it again. He's like, I know, I covered it. I'm not getting up. (laughs) Hand me the remote. (laughs) Covered, done, finished. That's what he said. When he said it is finished on the cross, guess what he meant? It's finished on the cross. That's it. Nothing deeper than that. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you remember me explaining that on the day of atonement, the priests had to go into the Holy of Holies and then hurry up and get out because if you're in the presence of God, you might die. Jesus sits down in the living room of God and goes, I'm home. I mean, that's the big difference. We're not dealing with human priests. We're dealing with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who died for our sins. And he went home. And sat down in the chair that he's always had on the right hand of the father in power. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, we keep moving forward. It says he was waiting from that time of completion from the cross forward until his enemies, verse 13, should be made a footstool for his feet. That is the old school concept in a battle where they would put their foot on the neck of the enemy, humiliating them, shaming them, making them powerless and saying at any time I can snap your neck. That is what Jesus ultimately did on the cross, but is waiting for his father to mop up because he's still utilizing the devil and his angels to get stuff done. Jesus is still allowing them to wreak havoc because it's according to his plan. When Jesus is done, snap, you're done. That's the way it goes. And it says that he's waiting for his enemies and you go, the enemies, oh my gosh, that means Jesus is trying to snap the neck of all the non-believers. Okay, here's the deal. The Bible is very clear on what hell was created for. Hell was designed, it even says in the Bible, it was designed for the devil and his angels. Do you remember that? The holding cell 
was for his true enemies. Whether or not we're all running in and joining in on that team and saying, I want to be an enemy of God too. Do you understand that's a little bit different viewpoint? Because now you have all these people who are ignoring and shouting crucify and all these different things and joining with the devil and his angels. So yes, wrath is on you. That's what rebellion against God means. Are you an enemy of God? Absolutely you are. Every single person that lives on the face of this earth is an enemy of God unless Jesus Christ cleanses you. That's the problem. Praise God that Jesus is here. And he can change your status. Yeah? He says, For by a single offering, verse 14, that was designed perfect as opposed to that temporary system, he has perfected, made holy and right for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time. He literally said, I'm good at what I do. And if I save you, I save you. So why is sin dealt with, but it sure doesn't look like it? Because ultimately he's allowing the process to carry out for relational reasons. So he's allowing us to stumble through and go through these things and learn what it is to have a relationship with God and bring things under control. He's allowing us to continue to run in chaos. He's allowing us to have these stumbling processes so we learn more about him. It's a relational piece. It's not that he can't. He can take us to heaven right now and perfect us. That's not a problem for him. But he's allowing the process to work itself out for relationship. And yes, we look chaotic. And yes, I know you're still a sinner. It's obvious. We can all tell. (laughs) Pick it up in verse 15 as we close it out. And the Holy Spirit, mentioning that the third member of the Trinity is involved in this as well, also bears witness to us by teaching us in the word. For after saying in Jeremiah 31, that's a quote, this is the covenant promise contract, whatever you want to say, that I will make with them after those days, those days of the Messiah, the day that it's actually fixed, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will make a personal relationship engagement contract of grace with my people. Then he adds in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Real quick pause on that. Does God really forget our sins? No. But it just said that he forget. Okay, Hebrew mindset, Hebrew concepts, Hebrew wording. To forget means act as if it is not so. To remember means actively pursue. So like, for example, it says, and God remembered Noah. It wasn't like God had forgot Noah. It's that God turned his face towards Noah and began to do something about it. When it says that he forgets your sins, God is not suddenly ignorant. Man, you're a thief? That's so weird because I didn't even remember any of that stuff. I shouldn't even have let you alone in the house. I I don't even know why I did that. Now my silverware is gone. You know what I mean? God's not suddenly ignorant like he doesn't have a clue. God knows full well what happened. God is all-knowing. So what does it mean when he remembers it no more? It means he acts as if it is not true. Why is this such an powerful statement? It's what he demands of you in forgiveness. Do you remember that abuse happened? Do you remember bad things happened? Of course you do. What did you just forget? No, it's not about forgetting. It's about acting as if it is not so. That's forgiveness. You are very clear in memory. As a matter of fact, most of you can remember it like it was yesterday. 
But what does it mean to forget in God's eyes, but to treat it as if it is not so? We finish it out with this line, where there is forgiveness of these trespasses, these violations, these rebellions against God, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because it's all done. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer, and I'll give you the challenge as we leave this morning personally. Heavenly Father, we offer up our lives to you, and we ask that you would change us and show us what it is to be cleansed. That Lord, there are so many of us in this room that need to be able to let go. Lord, there's some of us that don't need to let go because we have never apologized. We have never repented. We are still trying to play games with you. Lord, would you bring down the discipline upon us that we might be restored? But Father, for those of us that have been cleansed and we refuse to allow you to tell us that, I ask that you'd open up our spirits and allow a washing of your Holy Spirit to clean us out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.